So Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but also God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoken, uh, spoke by the mouth of of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Well, some of the hardest words in the English language are the words, I was wrong. And sometimes we'll go to great lengths to prove that we're right, that we're in the right rather than in the wrong. For example, in the 1970s, psychologist David Rosenham conducted an experiment Himself and seven other colleagues went to 12 different mental institutions and he gave them fake names and fake occupations. And the only thing that they told them was that uh, they heard voices saying thud, hollow, or empty. The reason they chose those words was because those words were not associated with any mental illness at the time. So they gave, told them those words and all of them were admitted into the mental institutions. After they were admitted into the mental hospitals, they started to act normal. And they said, the voices are all gone. We don't hear them anymore. They didn't show any other signs of uh, having mental illness. But despite that, they were all diagnosed with schizophrenia, except for one who was diagnosed with a manic depressive issue. And they stayed in the hospital from seven days to 59 days, even though they were normal and had no mental issues or history of mental issues. These pseudo patients were prescribed over 2,000 pills. The staff at the hospital even began to interpret completely normal behavior as being abnormal. One nurse observed that the patient observed in writing behavior. That was because he was taking notes of his surroundings and what happened to him in the hospital. David Rosen had said this, on the BBC show, The Trap. He says, I told friends, I told family, I can get out of here when I, when I can get out, that's all. I'll be there for a couple days and I'll get out. Nobody knew I'd be there for two months. 
The only way out was to point out that, their, that the psychiatrists were correct. They had said I was insane. I'm insane, but I'm getting better. That was an affirmation of their view of me. They never even stopped to consider that maybe their initial diagnosis was wrong. Sometimes it's easier even to apologize than it is to admit we're wrong. Uh, back in 2006, Mel Gibson was arrested for drunk driving, and then he went into this uh, anti-Semitic tirade, and did some crazy things, and the day after, instead of admitting his wrong, he said he apologized to anyone who I've offended for any behavior unbecoming of me in my inebriated state. After Martha Stewart was convicted of insider trading, uh, she said that she was sorry that it had come to this. Sometimes we'll do anything rather than admit that we're wrong. And the reason is because we tend to have views of ourselves that are maybe positive, and we want to uphold those views. So, for example, if we consider ourselves to be honest people and we tell a lie, if we admit that we told a lie, then we have to reckon with the fact that maybe we're not as honest as we thought we were. And so what we often do is we justify ourselves. We might say, well, yeah, I lied, but everybody else was lying. Yeah, I lied, but they drove me to lie. I had no choice. I'm an honest person, but I had no choice but to lie. Sometimes we'll do anything but say that we're wrong. The Bible has a word to describe admitting our, that we're wrong, and that word is repentance. And it goes beyond it just admitting our, that we're wrong, but also to turning from that wrong and turning to a new direction. Repentance has been defined as a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. But repentance is something that's not popular in our culture. In his book, Jesus, Mean and Wild, Mark Gailey discusses the challenge of repentance in American culture. He says this, I look at myself some days, and it's hard to imagine that I'm a miserable offender and that there is no health in me, as the Book of Common Prayer suggests. He says, I go to church, I read my Bible, I help at the homeless shelter once a month. At home, I do the dishes, take out the trash, don't beat my children. I don't even ground them. Most nights when I close my day with prayer, see there, regular prayer, another jewel in my crown, I usually have nothing uh, but picadillos to confess. A little sloth here, a little impatience there. For others, the problem with repentance runs deeper, he says. They've been raised in legalistic environments and carry around a guilt-laden backpack that would bend the needs of a Himalayan Sherpa. And most of the guilt, they realize, is neurotic, not based on any real transgression, but the product of defective discipleship. He says, years of Christian nurture has contorted their souls. So after drinking a glass of wine or failing to say the rosary or breaking one of a thousand other man-made religious taboos, they cannot shake the pangs of miserable guilt. If this is what repentance conjures up, they are right to want nothing of it. Others still fight not, to fall, not, uh, fight not false guilt, but spiritual despair. They believe rightly so that true religion is about love and grace. But they've heard a rumor that the Lord is a holy God, and they suspect that they just may be miserable sinners. So they spend their days making sure they, these two combustible ideas never mixed, something repentance tries to do. Because if they ever did, such people fear that the resulting explosion would blow their faith to smithereens. And to this, the 20th century fascination with self-esteem in a society hooked on affirmation steroids, and it is no wonder that we've created a faith that can hardly pronounce the word.
Repentance isn't popular in our culture. In the passage that we're looking at today, Peter has just healed a lame man. We looked at that story last week about he, how he healed a man that was lame since birth. And the crowd is amazed, and they come together around Peter, and, and Peter questions them, and basically he's like, why are you so amazed? Don't you believe that God could do something like this? If you truly believe in God, why are you so amazed that something like this could happen? Do you think it's by my own power and my own strength that I caused this man to be raised from being lame? And then Peter goes on to show that this healing is not simply a, a, just a miracle, but a demonstration of the power of God. It's a demonstration that Jesus' kingdom is inbreaking into the affairs of men. Now before we go further, question that many of us have when we read passages like this is we wonder to ourselves, so why don't we see miracles like this today? You know, as we've looked through only the first three chapters of Acts, we've seen some incredible miracles, and as we go further, we'll see even more. And we wonder, why don't we see the miracles like we saw in the book, they saw in the book of Acts? Now, and I think churches have kind of taken two different extremes. On the one hand, some people will teach that these gifts were only for the early church. They would be called cessationists, and they believe that there's no miracles like this today. The gifts of miracles are, are for that time period, they're over. Others in the more charismatic bent would, sometimes, would say that, yes, these miracles do happen today, and the only thing that's keeping us from these miracles is our faith. And if we have more faith, then these miracles are going to happen. And we need to expect and hope for these miracles. And, and sometimes to the, the great extreme of that is they get so focused on miracles and supernatural things that they forget about the reason for those miracles pointing to Jesus. So I think we need to have kind of a balance. I think we need to understand that this was a special time in the church's history. The, this was the time when the apostles were given the Holy Spirit and when God's Spirit was poured out, and these miracles served an important function. They confirmed the message of the disciples, and they showed that the kingdom of God was inbreaking into the kingdom of men. And so we see a great frequency of miracles. And so today, we might not see that same frequency of miracles, but there's nothing in Scripture to say that miracles have ceased to exist. And miracles do happen today. People are healed. Lives are changed. And so we might not see it with the frequency, but those miracles happen when we believe in God. Justin Holcomb says this, so how should Christians think about miracles today? He says, first, we must realize that the sheer volume and close proximity of the miracles in the Bible serve significant purposes in God's redemptive plan at the time. However, this point doesn't mean that miracles have ceased today. Indeed, as Grudem notes, there is nothing inappropriate in seeking miracles for the proper purposes for which they are given by God, to confirm the truthfulness of the gospel message, to bring help to those in need, to remove hindrances to people's ministries, and to bring glory to God. He says miracles still happen, and Christians should avoid the two extremes of seeing everything as a miracle or seeing nothing as a miracle. So miracles happened, maybe just not to the same frequency and proximity that they happened in the early church. It was a special time, special purpose uh, during that time frame that served to demonstrate the message of the gospel and breaking of the kingdom of God. 
But Peter points to the source of the miracle. He uses that miracle that happens and points it back to Jesus. And so he says, this shows that Jesus' message is true, that Jesus' kingdom is inbreaking into the affairs of men. And he calls for a response. He calls for repentance. When we think about repentance, I think sometimes we think about uh, maybe the people in society that we consider to be kind of the worst sinners. You know, we think about a murderer or a pedophile or a drunkard or adulterer. We think those people have to repent of their sins, and they do. But we all need to repent each and every day. We repent at salvation when we come to know the Lord. We're going one way. We repent and turn to the Lord. But we also need to continually repent. It's not just for salvation. It's an everyday thing. Martin Luther, in his, the first of his 95 Theses, said this. He said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is one way that we experience God's grace. Repentance is a pathway to experiencing God's never-ending grace. It's the conduit, so to speak, through which grace comes to us. It comes through repentance. If you've ever wondered if you're too far from God's grace, if you've ever wondered if you're too broken, look at this passage. Look at the charges that Peter brings against uh, the crowd. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murder to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. These are very heavy charges. He says, you've killed God's son. You've killed God's Messiah. And yet, despite that, there's still hope. There's still grace for you if you turn, if you repent. If that's true for them, it's also true for each and every one of us. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, there's grace and there's hope that's found in Jesus Christ when we repent. And Peter gives us three things that repentance brings about, three results of repentance. The first thing that he tells us is that repentance brings forgiveness, that your sins may be blotted out, he says. Now, the Greek word for blot out means to erase, obliterate, or wipe away. In the ancient world, people would write on papyrus, and as they would write on the papyrus, it, would, it wouldn't soak into uh, that papyrus. It would kind of sit on top, kind of like a whiteboard would for us today. And so what could happen is if they wanted to erase a part of it, they could blot out a portion of the papyrus. And that's the image of what God will do for us. He blots out our sin. Whether that's envy or pride or lust, or no matter what our sin might be, when we repent, he blots out those sins and they're as far as the east is from the west. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What an incredible gift that is that he chooses to show grace to us, to forgive us when we repent. And so for those of us maybe who are not believers, the hope is when we turn to him, we can be forgiven of our sins. But for those of us who are believers, truth is when we live in sin, sometimes it hurts our fellowship with God. Sometimes it leads to fear and anxiety in our relationship to God. Sometimes it leads to doubt. And, I, and saying that, I'm not saying that every time you fear or every time you doubt, that means that you, you've done something wrong, that you've sinned. But that's one possible cause. 
or doing things that we know that we shouldn't be doing, it harms our relationship with God. Uh, Tim Keller tells a story about a colleague of his uh, who was a college pastor. And his, this college pastor had a very abrasive approach to dealing with college students sometimes. And when they were home on break, sometimes he would get together and have a coffee with them. And he would ask him, so how are you doing? How's college treating you? And sometimes they would ask you, they would say, well, uh, I'm really struggling in my faith. I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about the, the, the Bible. I feel far from God. I just kind of in a place of limo. I don't know where I'm at. And then he would ask them a very direct question. He, said, he would say, so who are you sleeping with? And almost always they would be like, so how did, how did you know? Because when we're doing things that we know are not right, it leads to that insecurity. It makes us feel far from God. It makes the things that seemed crystal clear at one point seem shaky. Where we might have believed in God's word at one point, now we look at it and like, well, I'm not so sure. That's the effect that sin has on our lives. But when we repent, there's forgiveness. There's restoration of our relationship with God. The other the next uh, result of repentance is that repentance leads to renewal. It says in the text that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. According to scholar Daryl Bach, the Greek word for refreshing refers to cooling to relieve trouble or to dry out a wound. The only time that this word is used in the Bible is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 8, verse 11. In Genesis 8 is the story of when the um, plague of the, the frogs come upon the Egyptians. And there's frogs everywhere. And then God takes those frogs away. And it says in the text that there was refreshment or relief that came from those frogs being taken away. In the context that we're talking about here in Acts chapter 3, I think that this refreshment is talking about the rest and refreshment that comes from living in God's kingdom. Maybe even an allusion to the Holy Spirit here. That as we live lives of repentance, we're living lives in the kingdom of God. And as we're living in the kingdom of God, we experience refreshment or flourishing. Peace, shalom, as the Hebrews would call it, or well-being. I've done a lot of gardening, and I never really like to use Roundup all that much. And I especially don't like to use it now, seeing the the recent studies that have been done about it causing cancer. So I make up this natural weed killer and it consists of vinegar, salt, and dish soap. And the thing is that it's not quite as strong as you know, a product like Roundup, but the key is to go out when it's really hot and really sunny and spray it all over the leaves and then the leaves will start to dry out and hopefully uh, the, the weed will die. Sometimes you might need to spray it a few times depending on the size of the weed. But if you went out and sprayed it right before it was about to rain, you would spray that solution on there. The rain would come and it would wash it away. And I think that's a picture of kind of what repentance is like. When we sin, it's kind of like we're spraying weed killer on our own lives. It's like we're spiritually wasting away. We're spiritually drying out. But when we repent, it's like the rain of God's mercy comes upon us. And he causes us to grow and restores us and brings us back to him. This is a result of repentance. So repentance brings forgiveness of sins. It brings renewal. And finally, 
Peter tells us that it brings the opportunity to participate in the restoration of all things. He says that he may send the Christ appointed for you. The scriptures tell us that there's an important reason that Jesus has not returned yet. And that important reason is that he's waiting patiently for people to repent. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Each person that repents, that comes to know the Lord, hastens the day when Jesus comes back. And one day, the last person, whoever that is, will repent, and then Jesus will return. So here's a possible checkup we need to do. What is your reaction to the return of Christ? If you heard that Jesus was going to return this afternoon, how would you think about that? What emotions would go through your mind? Would you be filled with fear? Would you be filled with dread? Would you think of all the things that you're doing right now that you shouldn't be doing? Wonder how you're going to have to explain those things. Or would you look to him, look to that event with joy? Knowing that you're not perfect, knowing though that you're forgiven by the blood of Christ. Your reaction would only be fear and dread, then maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to turn from those things and turn to what life is like in the kingdom of God. Because as we repent, we are preparing ourselves for what the life is like when Jesus returns. As we repent, we are saying in essence, yes, Lord, I'm ready for you to come. Yes, Lord, I'm ready to live in your kingdom. Yes, Lord, I'm ready for the restoration when you will come to the earth and you will make all wrongs right. And so when we repent, we align ourselves to God's will align ourselves to God's kingdom, and his essence say, ever so, Lord, come quickly. So repentance is a pathway to a never-ending grace. It allows us to experience forgiveness, renewal, the opportunity to participate in the restoration of all things. But repentance is difficult, especially in our culture. We live in a culture that tells us that we should do whatever it takes to build up our, our, our self-esteem, that we're okay just the way we are, that we don't even need to change. And so oftentimes we might read the Bible, we might listen to the words spoken, and only look for those things or gravitate to those things that make us feel good about ourselves, the things that we're doing really well. You know, you think about, uh, say, try posting something on Facebook. Try posting something on Facebook about the love of God and how uh, there's peace and joy that's found in him. And everyone will be liking that and sharing that. But post something that's convicting. There'll be crickets. This is especially true for those who are, who've been in the church for a long time. You know, because sometimes we feel like we've arrived, like we get it. You know, maybe we used to struggle with kind of outward sins, whether those sins were uh, sins of the flesh, whether there was drunkenness or pride, whatever those things might be. And we fix those things up, and so we feel like we've done all that we need to do. The truth is, if we're reading the Bible, if we listen to the Word and we never feel convicted, we're not listening to God. We're not listening to Him. 
We just want to hear what we want to hear. We want to build ourselves up because all of us fall short. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us fall short of who Jesus is and what he's called us to be. And so as we read the word, as we hear the word spoken, it ought to convict us, cause us to repent, to turn to him. And when we do that, we'll find life. When we do that, he turns us from sinners into saints by his grace, by his power. There's an old story about two brothers who were convicted of stealing sheep. And in that time frame where they lived, in that culture, there was a very brutal punishment for sheep thieves. And they were branded with two letters, S and T. They were put on their foreheads for sheep thief. The one brother was just, went to the pit of despair because of this. And he went to another country to try to hide among those people to kind of forget who he was and maybe start a new life. But inevitably, wherever he went, people asked him, what do those letters mean? And then he would have to tell them he was a sheep thief. He wandered from land to land, land to land, but at length, and in bitterness, he died in an unmarked grave. But the other brother repented of his deed. And he chose not to leave his home. He said this, I can't run away from the fact that I stole sheep. And here I re will remain until I win back the respect of my neighbors and, my, and myself. The years passed and he established a reputation for himself of respect, of integrity. One day, years after this, a stranger came to the town. And the stranger asked the native, so that man over there who has the S and the T, on his forehead, what does that mean? And the native responded, he said, well, I can't remember for sure. It was a long, long time ago. But I think the abbreviation is, it's an abbreviation for the word saint because he's such a righteous person. See, that's the power of repentance. Jesus takes sinners, makes them into saints. When we come to know him, when we first turn to him in repentance and in faith, he forgives us of our sins, past, present, and future. And positionally, we're already saints. We're already forgiven. We're already saved. But as we live our lives and as we practice repentance, he forms us more into the image of his son. And he makes us practically into saints and grows us more close to him. That's the power of repentance. Repentance is the pathway to never-ending grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you choose to show mercy to us, even when we're in the wrong, even when we're broken, even when we deserve your judgment and your condemnation. You offer us grace. You offer us hope. You offer us a future that all we need to do is turn from that and turn to you and you'll restore all things. You'll forgive us. You'll renew us and you'll allow us to participate in the restoration of all things. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that all of us would be people of repentance. We've all fallen short, each and every one of us. We fall short every day and each day we need to say, Lord, Show me the things in my life that are broken. Show me where I need to repent. God, I pray that we would have that heartbeat, Lord, that seeks to honor you in all things.
Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that today would be the day that they turn from their sins and find hope and find rest in you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for all that you are for us. We look forward to all you're going to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.